We have been going through this summer. I hope you've enjoyed the series so far. Oh, epic. These are the, the, the amazing stories that we find in Scripture. Maybe if you grew up in the church, you the stories that you learned in Sunday school. And you, you heard about them. Uh, if, maybe if you were more like me, you didn't kind of grow up in the church, but you, you still hear about these stories through culture, and you kind of wonder, hey, what's going on with these? Well, we've been talking about them, and today we get to talk about a, a, the, the Battle of Jericho. Which, to be honest with you, uh, when I first heard this story, and it was before I was a Christian, uh, I thought, there is no way. Like, this has got to be one of those myth things, right? That this happened. But then, one day, I saw the ruins. It is an amazing story, and it's so rich. There's so many things that we get out of it. So, if you have a Bible, you want to take it right now, and uh, you want to open your Bible up to Joshua chapter 5. And so, um, let's, let's slow that next slide. There we go. Oh, I forgot our memory verse. Put your Bibles down. Get your hands ready. Because we're going to do a Bible memory verse. We'll get the Bible in our heart, then we'll get into the Bible. Our memory verse today is Psalm 18.2. And so, this is a hard one. It's a long one. So, you have to do the actions. Otherwise, you're not going to remember it. So, I'm going to show them to you, and then we'll do, we'll do it together. Okay? The Lord is my rock. See, it's like a rock, Right? My fortress. Then you have like a rock on top of rocks, a fortress. My fortress. My deliverer, like breaking the chains. My deliverer. My God is my rock. So you got the rock again. In whom I take refuge. You're taking refuge right in that rock, right? And then you say, my shield. So your hand becomes a shield. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. You see how natural that goes? Y'all got that? That's a powerful verse for today. Think about this. This world is a crazy place, isn't it? This world can cause anxiety like no other thing we've ever seen. Right? I mean, we've got terrorism. We've got crazy election things happening. We've got all kinds of natural disasters and all kinds of things. And this world can cause us anxiety. And I'll tell you, if we find, try to find our security in this world, that's what we will find is anxiety. And what do we see in our world? A lot of people suffering, worried, in fact, a lot of people get sick and die from anxiety. But I'll tell you what, there is a power in God's word that is for us that our God is bigger than this world. That, that our God can give us a security that this world never can. See, our God is our rock. He's not going anywhere. He is a fortress. He is a deliverer. And I'll tell you what, when you face anxieties of this world, whether it's you're, you're maybe facing something medical that's scary, or something financial that's got you worried, or you've got maybe some problems at, at, at home or at work, or, or your security is being rocked, or you're just looking at the state of the world today, and he's like, my goodness, what's happening? I'll tell you what, remember this verse. Remember the truth of God's word. Our God, he's not going anywhere. Our God's a rock. He's a fortress. He's a deliverer. We can take refuge in him. He is the very horn of our salvation. He is a stronghold. And you can have peace. And we're going to talk about today a very real story about how God is so much better than any fortress that man can make. And it's an amazing story. So now, get your Bibles out. You, you and my permission. There we go. It's Joshua 5. I'm sorry, I'm doing this from memory because my computer crashed. Yay, computers. If you don't have, uh, or you have one of our Bibles, turn to page 105. That's where it is. Um, if you don't have one of our Bibles, you can turn to Joshua 5 because we'll be reading the same stuff. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of ours. It's a gift we would love to give you as long as you read it. So it's a good thing, and they're in the back. Um, and as you're turning there to, to Joshua 5, let me um, give you a little bit of context as to what we're going to be reading. This was happened, this story took place in the 1400s BC, late Bronze Age. Pretty, pretty crazy stuff, okay? And uh, right before this, about 40 years, let's say, before this event takes place, there's this guy named Moses. You may have heard of him. Not, I'm sorry, you can read this. It's a good book. Uh, in, in Exodus, we'll talk a little about him. But uh, there's this guy named Moses, and he leads the people of Israel out of bondage from Egypt. And uh, they were two million slaves, and they just walk out. Now, they don't walk out in just like a regular place. They go down to a Red Sea and they cross the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea and they walk across on dry land. And, and Pharaoh comes down against them, right? And uh, he's going to kill them. And he's got chariots where like our modern version, like tanks. And he's going to destroy them and run them down. But as the people cross the Red Sea and they get to the other side, the chariots are in the middle of the Red Sea crossing across and God closes the water and destroys the power of the most 
the, the strongest army uh, military of, of the ancient world at the time. He single-handedly defeats them and people of, of Israel walk across the other side and they stand on the Red Sea and they look and they see their deliverance and God says from there, he leads them to Mount Sinai where they get the Ten Commandments, they get the law, they get a whole new way of living and God says, all right, not only do I have this for you, but also I'm going to lead you to the land I promised your ancestor, Abraham. And so they walk all the way across straight up to, to the promised land. didn't take them very long because it's not that far away. And they get to where it's the Jordan River. They've got to cross the Jordan River. It's kind of like us crossing the Big Thompson, you know, in, in the spring where it's got a lot of water and it's not easy to cross. But they get to the Jordan River and toes are in the Jordan River and they can see the promised land just on the other side. And so Moses said, all right, this is their land. Let's, let's send some spies in to check it out, see how things are there. And so he sends 12 spies in and they go into the land. They walk around, they come back and they say, it is everything God said it was. Unfortunately, he didn't tell us the whole story is that there are big giants there and we can't beat them. And so unfortunately, the land is off limits for us. Now, 10 of the 12 spies had that attitude. Two of the spies, one was named Caleb, the other one was named Joshua, kind of the same name as the book we're reading. Yeah, coincidence. They say, hey, no way, we can take this. God is with us. Remember what he did to the entire Egyptian army like not very long ago? All right, we could, we've got this. But 10 verses 2, 10 wins. God says, fine. If you guys don't want to take the promised land, you can get a timeout. So he sends them for a 40-year timeout. They walk around in the peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula, and that's been a lot of fun for them. And, uh, but God didn't abandon them. During that whole 40 years, God was with them. The ark still was there. There's a tent of meeting. God showed up with them. Not only that, but he took care of them. He fed them every single day for 40 years, manna from heaven. Even though they were faithless and they were, they were out wandering, he still took care of them. Their clothes didn't wear out. It was awesome. And then after 40 years... The last person that was age 20 and older when they were supposed to cross dies. Would you like to be that person? Like everybody's waiting for you to die. Like, come on, we'd like to get to the promised land. <laughs> right? So that, that guy finally dies. And the only two that are left, well, there was three really that were left, was Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. And Moses, it was his time to die. And uh, so God says, you need to pass the mantle on to, to Joshua. Joshua went from a spy now to the right-hand man of Moses and now is the leader of Israel. And so Moses has two million people under his command. He's on the wrong side of the river. And he says, ah, oh, we're going we're to take this land. Does Moses send, or does Joshua send spies in the land? No, he's like, I've already been there. We're going to take it. Problem is, how do you get two million people from one side of the river to the other? Right? It's easier to get 12 guys without all their stuff across as spies, right? Entirely other thing, getting two million people, families, all that kind of stuff across this river. And so God says, I got a plan for you. So what you're going to do is you're going to take the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence. You're going to take your, your priest, you're going to walk down to the river, and, and then you're going to cross, cross on dry land. Well, he didn't tell them that part. He said, just get down to the river and I'll take care of it. So what do they do? They pick up the Ark and you would think, this is, not, this is their most important thing, right? It is the Ark of the Covenant. This is, and it's not a good idea just walk into a rushing river with this thing. But God said to do it. So they're like, all right, here we go. So they walk down to the river. Boom, they touch the wi- river and it dries up. Like it says actually the water piles up at a town up the river ways, which had to be weird for the people who lived there, right? They're like, water doesn't normally do this. But then you know what happens with rivers is the rest of the water kind of flowed down and now you've got a big wide open spot where the people can cross. So two million people cross the river in this amazing miracle. Now does that sound familiar, that kind of miracle? Water piling up, people crossing on dry land. Oh yeah, kind of like Moses. What do you think God was telling the people of Israel? I'm the same God that who delivered you before. Same God. And what was he telling Joshua? It's, Moses wasn't the one who had the power. I have the power and I'm going to bring you across. And so they cross the, the Jordan River and as they're crossing, God says, that's what I want you to do. Take one guy from each of the 12 tribes and have them pick up a big rock from the middle of this river because it's a river stone. They always look a little different because they're more smooth, right? Pick up a big rock, bring it to the other side and then you're going to set up a, a, a big pile of cool rocks to remind you that these river rocks came from there. So you'll remember, you're not going to forget what I did because God knows that we forget blessings, don't we? Which is why I tell people when they have a prayer that they've had answered, They've been praying to God for something. They see God working. Write it down. We need to look back in those things and see God's working in our life. But anyway, so they set up these rocks. They set up on a place called Gilgal. And you know what's a cool thing? They've actually excavated that area, which is neat. And they found Joshua's altar. Now, when they get there, they set up camp. 
And God says, what you need to do, you need to be, all your men to be circumcised. Now, if you're going to take the land, that's probably not the first thing that most military guys would do, right? <laughs> but all the men circumcised. So now they're resting and they're healing, okay? They heal up and God says, okay, now it's time for the Passover. What was the Passover? Well, the Passover was to celebrate how God, uh, he passed over all of the, the firstborn sons of Israel uh, right before they got to leave Egypt. It was the last plague, and it's an amazing thing. It's an allegory of what Jesus does for us later on. I mean, it's a great thing. Um, but, but it was a real event. And so they're going to celebrate Passover in the, in the promised land the very first time. They do. It was awesome. And then after that, the manna runs out. Now, what do you know about feeding people? They need food. That's kind of like the very first thing, right? And if you have 2 million people and you've had food for 40 years, they don't have to worry about it. It's pretty easy. They could just go over God wanted and they could just rest and do whatever. But when the food runs out, now you've got to feed people. And feeding 2 million people, you just don't run by the local McDonald's, right? You, you have to have food. Now here's a problem is that it is now past the harvest time, which means that at this particular point in time, if they wanted to grow crops for all these folks, one, they'd have to have the land to do it, which they haven't conquered it yet. That's a problem. But not only that, then they'd have to plant the seeds, which they don't have, but they'd have to plant seeds, and then they'd have to wait for things to grow. And by the time it was harvest time, everyone would be dead from starvation. Right? So that's a problem. Let's admit. So God pushes them by their bellies into action. The manna runs out. You have to go get food. Where are you going to get food? If you can't plant your own crops and get them, where are you going to get it? from the people who have already planted crops and got it. And what's exactly what God told them to do. He said, you're taking this land. The produce is yours. Go get it. But he motivates them. He doesn't just tell them to obey. He says, all right, now my provision is there and you have to go take it. Nobody wants to go to war. I will tell you that. This is a truth. Unless somebody's psychotic and there wasn't two million psychotic people, nobody wants to go to war. Sometimes we need a little motivation to do what God asks us to do and so God gives them that motivation. And so now, okay, we've got to take the land. Now, in order to take the land, there was the first city that they had to come across was this massive walled fortress called Jericho. It was the biggest, baddest city that they had ever seen. In fact, there's a picture of it. Here it is. And uh, let's just take a look. This is the ancient uh, reconstruction of it, uh, what it would look like. On the outside was this massive ditch. You'll see that. It goes about four or five, some places six feet deep uh, on the outside. And what that does is it kept the, the runoff and the rain from eroding the area. But it also puts you at, you were actually lower than the bottom of the wall by like four or five feet uh, just standing there, right? Which makes it hard if you're going to use ram, uh, battling rams and stuff like that because it's hard to... To ram something, you're lower than. Now, all you have this, you have a, a wall like a, that's built. And that wall is not, uh, it, it's, uh, it's not like a wall. It's built on top of the land. It's actually uh, holding the dirt in there. Okay, so it's big stones, and it's very hard. And if you use a battering ram on that lower wall, you're just hitting rock that's it's solid all the way through, right? The whole city's built upon that. So you're not going to break that down, which makes it really, really tough. But it also made it really hard. If you tried to like dig down and undermine these walls, it wasn't going to happen, right? Because it was fortified. This is, this is tough stuff. Now, this is like six feet that goes down someplace a little bit more, but then you have this wall here. It's about uh, 14, 15, someplace it's 20 feet high, okay? So you think about if you're standing down here and you're looking up, you're looking at like a three-story building, two to three-story building, just standing there, and then on top of that, that's when the wall begins. A 20-foot tall wall, six feet wide, made of, of, of baked hardened mud brick, right? At the ancient world time, there was nothing that was a harder material for them to use. It was uh, fashioned in such a way it would fit lock tight. It was really tough. If you were standing at the bottom of that, looking up into this thing, you have a four-story building. You're, you're towering over the top of you. On top of this, it's about six feet wide on the top, which means there's enough room easily for archers to stand up there to shoot down on people that would maybe be coming and trying to attack you. Not only that, but they would have these big buckets full of hot stuff they like to pour on people if they would try to damage their walls. Not an easy place to take. But if that wasn't enough, these Jerichoites, they were a little bit crazy as far as like their security. And so they built an inner wall. Now this outer wall is about 13 acres, square acres, and nine po- uh, the inner wall is about nine square acres. Now in between the two is a, is a, is a space. It's not terribly wide, but, uh, and it's at an angle, and it's, got, it's paved with hard rocks, big, thick, hard rocks. Also, you can't tunnel up under it. And it kept like water and all that kind of stuff uh, would flow out of the city. And if you were a poor person, this is the part of the city you would live in. Why would the poor people live on the outside? Well, if there was an attack, where would you not want to be? On the outside, right? And um, guess where sewage runs? 
Yeah, so it's not a great place to live, but that's where they lived. And so you have that thing, and now you have this inner wall. That inner wall that goes up, uh, and goes up another 40 feet. So another like four-story building. And then on the inside of that, you have a, a, the main portion of the city. So Joshua, he sees this, and so he, as an ex-spy, understands that this is an important thing to kind of, as a military officer, how we're going to take this place. He sends some spies into Jericho to figure out how to take it. And the spies get into the city, and they discover that all the people in the city are terrified. Of course they are. Two million people just walked across on dry ground. It was the very same two million people who 40 years earlier walked across the Red Sea on dry ground and destroyed the Egyptian army. That's the kind of stuff that makes news and most people don't forget. And when those people are camped out just a few miles from you, you kind of get nervous, right? So you have a bunch of people in this city are terrified and they know that, that uh, something big is happening. And instead of saying, man, God is with them, let's go join them, right? Figure out how they get. Instead of saying, you know what? We want to be on your side. What did they do? They ran into their fortress and they walled and tried to keep God out. And so that's what they did and they were terrified. Well, the spies are going through and finding this, but they weren't great spies because they got found out. People were like, hey, you're spies. And that's like breaking rule number one of being a spy, right? <laughs> so, and so they, they get found out, oh, you're spies. And so they have to hide. So where do they go? They go to the outer wall, but then there's a, uh, where you're going to find a hide. Well, they find a prostitute named Rahab, okay? Now, this is a very wicked city, very wicked city, and here's a prostitute in a very wicked city, probably the least likely person that you would come across to say, here's a person of faith, right? But Rahab was a, was a woman of faith. She says, I know that you guys are God with you, and I want to be on your side. So she said, I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I will hide you from these guards if you save me and my family, right? If you won't kill me and my family when you come take the land. Which lets you know all the people in, in Jericho, they understand, the, they understand the deal. She had the intelligence to say, I don't only have faith, but I'm going to apply it in my life, right? So she finds these, these guards and they say, okay, or the, the, uh, the spies, and they, they say, okay, that seems like a good deal. They said, now, here's the exception. You have to all be together when we come to take the city. You have to be together and you have to hang a scarlet thread out your window so we know where you're at so you won't die. She says, oh, we can do that. They say, fine, done deal. So then she hides them and the guards come knocking at the door. And they're like, hey, give us the spies. And she opens the door and she's like, oh, there are no spies here. They ran out the front door and, uh, and to the woods. And, uh, of course, you always trust the prostitutes. So the guards were like, well, that seems legit. And so they ran off <laughs> and uh, they went to look for, for them in the outside. Now, after they had gone far enough that Rahab lowers them out of the city wall, which lets you know that's where her house was, was on the city wall. Actually, it was right about here, and I'll tell you a little later how we know that. But anyway, she lowers them down, and uh, they get out of the city, and uh, they spend a couple nights in the wilderness to, to kind of get the guards off their back, and then they cross the river again, and they go, and they tell uh, Joshua, they say, here's the deal. God has given us this city, no problem. The people are paralyzed with fear with us and all that kind of stuff. And Joshua's like, hey, that's great. Problem is, how do you take a city like that? Now, to take a big city like this, normally what you would do is uh, you would cut it off, right? You would surround it with your armies, you'd make sure no food got in, all that kind of stuff, and you'd starve the people out. A couple things were a problem with that. One, uh, they had arrows, and so they would shoot you if you tried to, you know, blockade the city, which is hard. Another thing of the problem is they had a, they had a well, like a, a big spring that gave the people water from inside the city. So you couldn't just cut off the water supply and have it fall quickly because they had an endless supply of water. So you'd have to do it slow. You had to wait till they run out of food. This was after harvest time. They had so much food in the city, they could have lasted over a year easy, right? So if you're going to take this city and you're going to use the regular human strategy. You're going to use this blockade. You're going to surround it and all this kind of stuff. You're looking at about a year-long siege at least. Now, how much food did the people of Israel have? Yeah, they needed to get some food quick, right? They didn't have time to be able to be doing this whole regular siege thing. And so if you were Joshua and you just took control of the people of, of, uh, and you have two million people under control and the food runs out and you have this massive and possible task in front of you, what do you do? Yeah, he does what most good leaders do is he goes for a walk. <laughs> what am I going to do? What am I going to do about this? This is where we pick up the story in, uh, in chapter 5, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, it says uh, on uh, verse 13, it says, Now, 
When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? And isn't that the question we usually ask? We have this false dichotomy in life that is either us or them, right? And really, I think the false dichotomy for us in Christ is we always think, well, God's on our side. Like it's us and them, but it's, you know, but God's on our side, so it's us and them. And so he's basically asking, you friend or foe, are you for us or against us? And I love the answer. He says, neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. What a great answer. Hey, God's not on anybody's side, but he invites us to be on his side. And that's exactly what he did with Joshua. Just because they were the people of Israel didn't mean they were fighting God's battles. But God said, you know, you can fight my battle, right? You can be on my side. And what happens? And Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And so Joshua did so. Does that sound familiar? Now, who else had an opportunity to take off their sandals because the place they were standing was holy? Moses. Do you think that might have meant something to, to Joshua? Made a reminder that it was the same God that, that led Moses, was the one that was also leading him. What a great thing. But it also lets us know when Moses was told to take off his sandals, who was in his presence? God. Now here's the, the commander of God's army standing there called the Lord. Who is this? Yeah, it's God. And who is God in human form? Jesus. Now look at the power of Jesus here. Confident. I mean, he's, he's got all the Lord's army as control. Same guy who went to the cross later. Does that give you some type of understanding of the meekness of Christ? He had so much power, even while he walked on this earth. I mean, he could commands legions of angels, totally powerful, and yet puts up with us as we hurled insults at him. This is amazing. Uh, don't think Jesus was a sissy. Certainly not. And so he says, take off your sandals. And so he does. And then we see where the people were afraid. They said, now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because, it, because of the Israelites and no one came in or went out. Now, that shows you the level of terror that was happening. And it also made the city harder to, to attack because they were ready for defense. And so, God gives Joshua a plan. Now, there was a, a famous missionary whose name I forgot because it was in my notes. And I thought, I don't have to memorize this. But nonetheless, this is what he said. He's a great missionary. A lot of people know him. And, uh, and I, I, this quote that he wrote once, and I read it years ago, in, uh, in our missions booklets, it, it said this when I was taking classes in Bible college. He said, there are three ways to go about uh, a plan in, in life. Said, the first thing you can do is uh, do your very best and hope that God blesses it. The second thing you can do is come up with your best plan and ask God to bless it. And the third thing you can do is ask God for his plan and bless it through your obedience. Now, which do you suppose might be the best way? Right? Now, sometimes when God, we ask God for his plans, his plans are very different than ours. Sometimes they seem ridiculous. Sometimes they sound absolutely crazy. Like, I don't know, love this person who's being horrible to you. Forgive this person who absolutely has done nothing in their life to deserve it. Or stay with this spouse because uh, you've committed to them even though it's hard. Or love this child or this person even when they're, they're not easy, right? God tells us has some weird plans for us in our life sometimes, right? Well, God had a weird plan for Joshua. It was a really strange plan. And this is how it goes. He says, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Get the, the tense on that. Am I going to deliver Jericho into your hands? No, no, no. I already done it. It's a done deal. Now, Joshua might look at that and say, yeah, Jericho is very healthy right now. Very big walls. I, I had spies check them out. But it was already a done deal. It was as though it had already happened. I've, I've delivered Jericho in your hands. He says, along with its king and its fighting men, it's going to be total. He says, now, what's what I want you to do? March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in the front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city, city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast of the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. And then the walls of the cities will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Good plan, right? How would I be Joshua? You're like, that is, that is a bad plan, commander of the Lord's army. <laughs> like, have you ever fought war? What are your credentials? It seems so stupid. Just march around it, blowing trumpets, and yell? 
But this was God's plan. Now, there's some things in God's plan that for us to look at, maybe some curiosity things. You might notice there's some things in there, like the number seven. You notice the number seven in there? There's seven days you're supposed to march around the city, right? And, and then the, the last day you march it seven times, and you're supposed to have seven trumpets that are playing with seven priests, right? And it takes seven days to get through this whole thing. What's the deal with the number seven? Well, sometimes in Scripture, uh, numbers have significant meaning. A lot of times in, uh, we find that numbers... Um, symbolize something. God is telling us something through the numbers. And seven is a number of divine completion, right? It's, it's phrased lots of different ways depending on which book, but it's basically it. When God completes something, when it's God's fullness on this earth, uh, the number seven. So how many days does it take God to create the world? Six, and then he rests on the seventh. He made the weekend. So seven days, right? The seventh day was his. God's completion was there. So he sets this idea of total completion of God's work on this earth. That's important because what is God telling them in the number seven all those times as to whose work it was to take down Jericho? It's God's work. It wasn't their work. You know, to punctuate this point, he talks about the horns and he tells us a very specific kind of horn they're supposed to use, the ram's horn, which actually in Hebrew is the yobel. Isn't that cool? Well, we'll talk about why it's important in a second. There were two kinds of horns that the Israelites had. The first one was a silver horn. They had two of them. And these silver horns were blasted different times to tell the people to do something. So if they both blasted, then the people were supposed to come together for worship. If they had different, uh, one of them would blast a certain way, the people would turn left or right or they'd move out in certain ways. The silver horns were horns for the people to do something. The yobels, which is where we get the word jubilee, Right? These ram's horns, they were the horns that were sounded at celebration. And think about Jubilee, the, uh, the, the year of Jubilee, which the ram's horns would sound. It was a party. It was a time in which God would restore freedom to all people and return the land back to everyone who it really belonged to. And now what was God doing with his people? He was returning the land to, to Abraham's descendants. See, when, when the people of Israel marched around the city with their seven yobels, they weren't trumpets of war because there was no war. They were announcing the jubilee. It was a party march. How cool is that? Now, notice this. There was a way that they were supposed to march. Army people, right? You got soldiers. And then what do you have? Uh, behind them, you're going to have priests with, with your horns. And then you're going to have the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolizes God, and God is there. And then you have the army. Where is God in that? The middle, right in the middle. You know, it's awesome for us to see in our life, God calls us to do amazing things in, in, our, in our faith, in our walk. And God says, I am with you. I'm right there with you in the middle of your life, in the middle of the conflict. I am there, right there in the middle with you. That is so cool. And God sets a standard for them as they walk around the city and it shows that God, even in his presence, is there in the battle and right there in the center with them. So they, they say, okay, this is the plan. This is what you're going to do. Joshua goes right back to the camp. He's like, I just talked with God. Okay? We got this. This may seem crazy. Just hear me out. And so he tells the priests and the people, this is exactly what we're going to do. And you will read in there all of just basically what we read before, detail by detail. This is how we're to take the city, okay? And it shows us that Joshua knew that their obedience was important. He didn't add stuff. He didn't take stuff. He just kind of said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to follow God's plan. And the people went out immediately and they did it that very day. Now, it only took an hour to walk around Jericho, okay? It's, it's like 13 acres. It's not huge. And so they walked out and they did that and they walked around the thing and it wasn't the entire two million people because you can't fit two million people around 38. It was the army. There were certain sections of the army and they marched around the city and they came back. Now, if you were in Jericho and you see this happen, you're thinking, oh no, here it comes, right? The, 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 the lookouts are looking and they see the, the people coming and the trumpets and the soldiers and they're like, oh, here comes the siege. And they circle the city just like you would expect the siege to happen and then they leave. You're thinking, man, whew. Right, that was good. Right, a little anticlimactic, but I'll, I can deal with that, which is decent. And then the next day they come back. <laughs> right, they march again, and then they leave, and you're like, "Ooh, that was weird." Third day, you're starting to get nervous, right? Like this is strange. Fourth day, you're like something bad's happened. I don't. I'm getting bad feelings about this. Fifth day, sixth day. Some people by like that sixth day were probably like, "Ah, this is stupid." Like, come on, do something, right? Seventh day. They come back. Everybody thinks the same thing. March around the city once. They're like, okay, we'll see you tomorrow, right? <laughs> Not what happened. 
they keep going. And the people started marching, like looking out the walls, like, man, this is weird. Like, what's happening next, right? You know, the little heads popped up over the wall. What's going to happen? And then they go around again and again and again, six times, seven times. They go around the wall, and then all of a sudden, the trumpets go, like loud and long, like, and they're like, what's going to happen? And then Joshua talks. And Joshua says this to his people, uh, which is, uh, he gives some, some important inser- uh, things here. He says, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now this is a statement of faith, because has one brick fallen down from Jericho yet? No, they had just marched around it for seven days, and now seven times. Right? They hadn't shouted yet, nothing, but the walls look very solid right now. Sometimes it's after that 11th hour that we finally see God show up, right? I imagine they were hoping as we march around the city, the walls maybe will crumble or something. I don't know. But they're all waiting for God to do something and nothing's happened yet. And Joshua, in the midst of all the the evidence against God's activity, he says, shout, because God has given you the city. Now, he's putting it all on the line because if the people shout when the walls don't fall, you look pretty dumb. I think a lot of times in our faith walk, God tells us to do things, and we take a step out in faith, and if God doesn't show up, we look pretty dumb. But we have to take those steps sometimes, because until we take those steps, nothing happens. And so they do. But before they shout, he says, For all in this city and all that are in it are devoted to the Lord, which means don't take anything. This city was wicked, and God's the one who's judging it, and this city was not for loot. This was God's city. It's, it's the idea of this, uh, when it says it's devoted to the Lord. Think of like when uh, you drop an atomic bomb on a city. It does a lot of destruction, wipes out a lot of things, but it doesn't wipe out everything, does it? There are still things that are left inside of it, but you don't want to take those things. Because if you do, they're radioactive and they'll kill you. This city was full, it's going to be full of stuff, and God said, you take the silver and the gold and that kind of stuff, and you put it in the temple treasury, it's mine, but everything else, you burn, right, and leave. Don't take anything. He says, and if you do take it, you're going to bring destruction on the people, so don't do it. The second thing uh, he tells, or the third thing, actually the first thing is to shout. The second thing he says, don't, uh, don't take anything. The third thing he says to do is find Rahab. He says, uh, only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her, the house, will be spared because, the, um, because she had hid the spies. All right? Telling God's people keep their word. And so save Rahab. This prostitute lets you out. Even though she's a lowly prostitute on the outer side of a, of a condemned city, you find her and you save her. Don't kill her. And so God's people keep the word. And so what they do is they shout and the walls come down. It's the coolest thing. It says, at the town of the trumpet, when the men get the loud mighty shout, the walls collapse. So everyone charged straight in and then they took the city. Now, How did they do that? How does everyone go straight in? Well, we've got some problems here. The first problem is uh, it's it's uphill, right? Remember, you've got like a four-story building to overcome before you can go straight into this. Even if the walls just fell flat and were just there, you've still got like 20 feet to like kind of climb up or over to to be able to get into the city. That's hard. Plus, you've got an inner wall. How are you going to do it? Beyond that, you've got the army totally surrounding the city because there's so many of them. Right? So how are you going to go straight in from all sides? This is why it's so amazing what happened. The walls fell out and made ramps. Isn't that crazy? They fell 360 degrees. Walls fell out and made ramps. And the people of Israel charged straight in, which was awesome. Right? Now, archaeologists, they come and they dig the site out. For a long time, they're like, there weren't really walls here. Why? Because they were standing on the walls out here until they started excavating on the outside and realized, wait, these are walls. And then how they fell out and they said, how did this happen? Right? And they said, well, it looks like earthquake damage. The problem is earthquakes don't make walls all fall out in 360 degrees just out. It is a legit miracle. It is so cool. Now, except for all the walls fell 360 degrees for one little section that's right here. One little section of the outer walls was still standing. Who do you suppose lived there? Isn't that cool how God is? He is faithful. Now, the walls fell out, the people went in, and they killed everyone by the sword. And that's where it's really hard for us because we have a hard time with genocide, right? Good. I hope we all have a problem with genocide. It's hard. Okay. Here's the thing. God is a holy God. And this should make us uncomfortable because we're not holy, are we? 
fact, it says in Scripture, every single one of us has gone astray. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us is, is deserving of God's judgment. And our God is a holy God, and he shows us in Jericho that God doesn't play footsie with evil, that God has no tolerance for sin, and that doesn't make him cruel, it makes him just. And that's hard for us, but I'll tell you this, our God is sovereign and he's holy, and he doesn't, he, he's not going to be corrupted, but he also is merciful. And how do we know that? There was a sliver of the wall still standing, and someone was saved by God's grace through faith. You see, Rahab had enough faith to trust in this God of Israel and to turn to him and to trust that he would actually keep his word. And he did. You know, this amazing thing, this, this young prostitute named Rahab doesn't just save herself but her whole family. She leaves and, and guess what happens to her? Well, she's assimilated into the people of God and later on she becomes like this great grandma of King David who later becomes, she's in the lineage of Jesus. In fact, if you look on the lineage of Jesus, I've got a big chart in my office that has all the lineage. She's dead center. See, God can turn anybody's life around. He can make a, a prostitute into a grandmother of the Savior of the world. How cool is that? That God can take anyone and transform anybody's life and their lineage and their heritage. God can do it, and he has. God saves by grace through faith. He's a holy God, and he's a loving God. And that's what Jericho shows us. Now, here's show us a picture of Jericho today. It's kind of cool if you want to see it. Uh, you'll notice that it's barren. It's uh, not a lot of stuff, but you can actually see there's like Siege ramps, like ramps where you could actually walk up to the top of the hill. You don't see like big things. It's kind of cool. Still nothing there. And there's a reason for that. See, uh, in, uh, that is my Bible. That's over here. There's this guy named Joshua at the end of that battle. After everyone in and they, they burned the city. Oh, by the way, when they excavated this, guess what they found? Four feet of soot. Four feet. They burned the whole thing. And under that soot, they were still, guess what they had found? Full baskets of grain. So the people of Israel, they didn't touch the stuff. They obeyed God. They left, every, well, most everybody. We'll get to that in a second. But most people, they left everything in there. And these hungry Israelites who could have taken the grain, they, they left it. It was just as God wrote in Scripture. It's exactly what happened. So cool. Well, Joshua said, this is a city that was devoted to God. It's a space that we don't want to build on. You don't want to build on a bound foundation. And so Joshua ends up, he gives a, a, a what's called a, a the uh, uh, ban. Don't build on this site, basically, he's going to do. This is to remind us what God is. So he says to them, at that time, Joshua announced a solemn oath. He said, Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay his foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up his gates. And so it seems pretty clear. Don't build here. And he sets a solemn oath. This is agreement between people and God. So we're not going to build here, and this is going to happen if you try. Well, guess what happened? 600 years later, there's this guy who lived around the time of Ahab. He forgot to read the Bible and didn't remember this curse. So it's important to know the word. And He ends up trying to build the city, and guess what happens? Well, he laid his foundations, and his oldest son was killed in a building accident. And as they were setting the doors, his youngest son was killed in, in a building accident as they were trying to set the hinges of the massive gates. And guess where Jericho sits today? It's still barren. Still stands as a timeless reminder of God's power his ability, his strength, his justice, and his mercy. It's a timeless testimony for us all to look at. And see, this is the, a picture of God working in human history. An amazing thing. What a faith builder. Well, people of Israel, I wish that was the end of the story. It's, uh, it really is the end of Jericho. But there was that one guy, I told you, that, that wasn't totally faithful. His name was Achan, and you can read about him in chapter 7. Achan was a soldier of the Lord. He was one of the guys who yelled and, and ran straight in, a man of great faith. He saw God do this stuff, and as he was going through and, and uh, was, was uh, the killing and burning and doing all this stuff, which you know, was hard day work, he ends up seeing something he thought he might like. It was just a little bar of gold. only weighs about two pounds. Little trinket, right? And he sees a little scarf, a beautiful, maybe his wife might like it, you know, a nice silken thing, and they'd been walking around the desert for 40 years, so he's like, hey, why not? I'm going to take these things. So he takes them, like, no one's going to, you know, what does God need this for, whatever, I'll just take these things, and he hides them in the bottom of his tent. Well, then, uh, next couple of days, they decide, well, we have, to, we have to take the city Ai, which is close, a much smaller city, and so this will be easy, so they send a small contingent out to take the city, and God said, you know what, you can have this city, you can have the stuff that's in it, and, uh, and so the, the, this army goes up to take Ai, and Ai defends the people, or defends off the attack, and actually kills like 30 of the Israelites, and, and they fight them back, and Joshua was, was like, we really rocked him, because he thought, you know what, if word gets out that Ai beat us, this little tiny town, 
then all the other towns are going to be emboldened against us and they're going to come together and they're going to destroy us. This is a bad deal. He said, God, why did you do this? And God said, it's because you weren't faithful. I told you that city was mine. I told you it was to be dedicated and, and somebody took something. And so Joshua's like, man, how do I find that? I got two million people. I'm going to find who stole something. God said, I got you covered. Everybody line up by tribe, by 12 tribes, so they do. And God picks one of the tribes out. And he says, now in this tribe, everybody line up by clan, so they do. And picks one of the clans out. And by clan, line up by family. And they do that. And by family, Achan's family is selected. And then by man, Achan is selected. And you can imagine he was getting more and more nervous as this was happening. And Joshua says, what have you done? And he says, you got me. This is what I did. And this one man out of all of those soldiers sinned. And it cost the lives of other Israelites. His, his sin affected the camp. And so his punishment, he was killed, his family, that everything that he took was burned, was dedicated, and now Ai also had to be dedicated to God, and they had to not take anything from that city either. It was a hard thing. It was a hard lesson. But it shows us this, that partial obedience is not acceptable. And God requires obedience. It also tells us this, that sin in the camp affects everybody. We like to be in Christ, uh, our world, we think that I'm, a, I'm an adult, I can do what I want, and if I sin, it's my business and it doesn't affect anybody else. You can be not further from the truth. You are in community. God designed us to live in community. And if you are in sin, it affects all of us. And if I'm in sin, it affects all of us, which is why we have mutual accountability. We have one another, not to be legal police, but as to say, listen, in your life, sin is hurting you. But it also affects us. It affects the testimony, it affects the work. God's has brought us together in community to help one another draw each other closer in righteousness. It's a great thing. But it's important for us to realize that we don't have private sins that just don't matter. They matter. Okay, so here's a weird story. What are our takeaways? I think in the first one you get this. We fight from victory, not for it. Okay? I think a lot of times in our world, we think as Christians, we've got to do this great thing so that otherwise you know, we're in this, this social battle or this religious battle in this world or whatever. And if we don't do our part, then somehow God's going to lose. God's already won, right? Didn't he say, I've given you peace, right? I've overcome the world. I have overcome. That was past tense. He is king of the world, creator of the world, right? He will be destroyer of the world and remaker. He's, he is he is God and he is overcomer. He overcame death and sin on the cross. He has overcome this world. We are with him. We fight from position of victory, which means that we don't have enemies in this world that we have to battle against. We have principalities, wrong ideas, hatred, all these other kinds of things that we get to battle against. We get spiritual forces that are against God we get to fight against. But people, there is no human on this earth that is our enemy. And it, sometimes they disguise themselves like our enemy really well. But we fight from a point of victory. We don't have to be panicked. It's not like they're going to win. God has already won, so we can relax. And when we relax and take off that idea that the battle belongs to me, then I can begin to just say, okay, God, let me just be faithful. Because I know that you've already won, you've already got this, and if I'm faithful, then your will is going to happen. It's a good thing. So we fight from victory, not for it. I think something else that we get from this is that faith has power. It does. I mean, the walls came down because the people were faithful. You think that they were walking around the wall like three days later and they're like, this is stupid. Let's just shout now. Think the walls would have came down? No, faith has power in life, but it only has power because God has power. Say the people in Jericho had just as much faith as the people of Israel and they believed in their false God and they had all the faith. We're going to do something and keep these walls up. Would the walls have stayed up? No, imagine the people of Israel had all the faith that they were going to knock the walls down with their voice, but God didn't tell them to do it. Would it, have, would it have occurred? No, God is the one who has power, right? But faith is our ability to unlock God's power in this world, right? So that's what we call that, that victorious living in Christ. But there's some, something that's important for that. Faith has power because God has power. It means that, that my faith must be practiced in obedience to God. So if you were like me when you were a young Christian and you read in Matthew, you say, listen, I can move a mountain. If I have the faith of a mustard seed, I can move a mountain, right? And the first thing I did is I went outside and I said to Long's Peak, move. And it didn't. And my, I was just devastated, right? Why did it not move? Because it didn't take any faith for me to tell it to move. See, if God told me, tell Long's Peak to move, and I walked out even with the faith of a mustard seed and said, this lawn's ridiculous, but okay, move, it would move. See, faith requires obedience. We have to have faith in something, and that something has to be a someone, and that someone needs to be God.
because he's the one who has the power. Which means this, our third thing, which is tied into it, is that obedience is not optional. If you want to have a powerful life in Christ, you need to be obedient to God. Not for your salvation. He saves you by God's grace through faith. Just like Rahab didn't have to be a squeaky clean person to be saved. But we're getting past the obedience. Now we're walking. Now that we are saved, God has something so much more for us than to live lives of thin grace. Right? He tells us, obey, go into this world, forgive people, love people, care for people, be generous, be kind, serve. And if we as Christians don't do those things, our faith, which is not obedient, will do nothing, will it? Will it change the world? Does it change hearts? Does it change us? But when we step out in faithfulness to God, when I love my wife because God says, you know what? She is your bride and you care for her and it doesn't matter what happens in life, you are committed to her and I love her out of obedience to God. God blesses that. And we have a great relationship and love. And when I care for my son and I provide for him because God says, do that for your family. And I go to work and I like my job, but I, there was jobs I didn't like. And when I even went to those out of obedience to God and I was faithful and provided, God blessed it. You see, when we live our lives in obedience to God, powerful things happen. Obedience is not an optional part of the Christian faith. Grace is not optional either. We need it. But once we have grace, we are called to walk in obedience with God. Not so that we can become legalistically more superior to other people, but so that we can walk in accordance to what God's plan is, so we can see God's kingdom come here, which is cool. All right, so what's the, what's the moral of the story? If you get nothing out of the story, what is the big thing? God wins. Isn't it awesome? There was a song that came out so long ago. Some guy says, all I do is win, win, win. He doesn't, yes. right? God does. Everything God does will be successful. You can't dethrone God. You can't knock him. He wins. And so let's not ask God to be on our side. Let's ask God what he's up to and then bless his plans with our obedience. Yeah? Okay, how do we do that? Well, I've got some ideas. Your connection card, if you want to take that out. On the back side, here's some things that we can do to apply this into our own life. And the first one here is maybe for you this week, you're going to commit to this, memorizing Psalm 18.2. Hand gestures and all. Maybe that's what you need to begin with, is having God's truth in your life so that way you know what to obey and what to trust. You can have God's security in the midst of a very insecure world. So maybe this week, this is what you begin with. And as you memorize this verse, maybe begin to think about what is, how does it apply in my life? What does it mean that my Lord is my rock? What does it mean that he's a fortress, a deliverer? How about for you? What does that mean? You go through it and think about it. How is this applying? Spend time with God's word, memorize it, meditate on it. How about this? Maybe for you, you need to get into God's Word. Maybe you've been reading the Bible or maybe you need a place to start. Here's a great story. It's a fun story for starters. It's awesome. You got to see it's a real story. You see, you can actually see what happened. Maybe you want to read that. Well, that's in Joshua 5, chapters 5 through 7. And maybe that's what you want to read this week and say, you know, I'm going to spend time doing that. I commit to that. Or how about this? Maybe you want to render God's Word to your life. What does that mean? There's a difference between believing something and rendering. Believing is like uh, accepting a check. Right? Remember those? People would write them. They had numbers on it. It was like money. You're getting a check is like accepting. That's belief. Rendering is cashing it. It's going to the bank, endorsing it, getting the actual cash. This is the ideas in our life. God's given us commands. He's given us things to do. And we might believe that they are true in our own heart and life. This is what I ought to do. This is how I ought to live. Those things are great. You've accepted the check. You've, you have truth. Rendering it means now applying that to your life. Maybe that thing is... It's telling truth. Maybe you have a problem, you know, sometimes you tell little lies and rendering God's truth saying, you know what, I'm going to render God's word to my life as I'm going to be a person of truth. Or maybe it's being a person of forgiveness or of mercy or of generosity or of purity. You know, rendering God's word is taking what you know to be true and start applying your life. And maybe that's where you need to be. Don't be like Achan. Don't be 97% faithful. Maybe you say, this week, I'm going to start doing the work with God, and his grace is always there. Maybe you say, you know what, I'm going to take steps of faithfulness. I'm going to render his word into my life. Or how about this? Maybe what you need to do is encourage others with truth. Because this world is, is very convincing, isn't it? It makes us really think that it's all about right here and now. Our bellies make us feel like it's about the food that we're going to have, or our bodies, the clothes, or the comforts that we need, or our security. I'll tell you, this world is a vaporous. It's passing so quickly. 
Maybe you need to encourage one another to live in truth, to say, you know what? I know it's hard to, to forgive that person, but you know what? You can do it. Christ forgave us, and I'm going to help you. Maybe it's, maybe it's sending somebody an email this week and saying, you know what? God loves you, and he's with you, and you're going to make it, and I'm here with you. I'm praying for you. Maybe it's sending somebody a text or going on Facebook and their chat thing, or maybe it's sending one of those, those things that you get that's like paper, and you write with a pen, and you send it through the mail. You put a stamp on it. Maybe it's doing that and encouraging one another in love. As the scripture says, we should do that all the more as, as the day of his return is approaching. So maybe that's what you commit to. Or maybe something else. All through this message, you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you to do something. Take actions, not any of these. Write it down, let me know. Why? Well, I'll be praying for you this week, but also as your pastor, I want to know what God is doing in our church, how he's calling us to move. Because the idea, we want to be in, in lockstep with God's plans, not my plan for this church, right? So let me know what God has us doing. I'll be praying and supporting you. If you have another decision, please let us know. Also, if you have a prayer request, let me know. We will be praying for you this week. We will be joining you in prayer and seeing what God can do in your life. So please write those down. In a few minutes, we're going to take our offering. If we take our offering and the baskets are passed, please take these connection cards, put them in the basket along with your tithes, your offerings. Make this an offering of your heart to God this morning. Uh, Before we do that, let's pray for our, our commitments and for our offerings. Father God, we are enamored of you not just because you are powerful and not just because you are mighty, though those two things um, certainly are, are worthy of, of our awe. I mean, Father, your, your power, to be quite honest, makes me nervous. And it's not because of you, it's because of, of humanity, to be honest with you, God. It's uh, that we, we abuse power pretty, pretty horribly, just about every chance it seems we get. Um, so, Father, when I read in your word that, that you have the power to destroy cities, um, that you have the power to, to create life and to take life, it's... It's, uh, it's, it's a little intimidating. It makes me understand how vulnerable that, that I am. The Father, what gives me peace in this, Lord, is, is your character. That your power is, is tempered and is controlled by a loving and a just heart. That you are as kind as you are, as you are powerful. And Lord, you are as loving as you are just. And so, Father, it's in that context that I see your power as comfort. I see it as a shield and a fortress. It gives me security and not anxiety, and I thank you for that. Father, as we look at Jericho and we we do business with what the lessons are there, help us to render the truth of that to our own lives. Well, let us follow you, not just half-hearted obedience, but all of us trusting you. Give us the courage to step out in faith, even when what you tell us to do makes no sense to our earthly minds, because we know that you can accomplish anything. And Father, as we do that, help us to be encouragers of one another. Let us be a church that is known for our love for you and for one another, that we care for each other and encourage and lift each other up. Give us words and opportunity to do that. And Father, we thank you for these offerings that we have the opportunity to make, these gifts, these, these tithes that we get to bring to you. Father, we do that not just out of obedience, but out of love. So, Father, take these gifts, these, this, the, these monetary gifts that we have an opportunity to bring back to you, and I pray that you will bless them for your purposes. Give our pastors, our staff, our financial team wisdom and, and a good accountability, Father, to, to spend this and invest these resources in a way that builds your kingdom and your people into your kingdom. Lord, we ask all of these things in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.